Okay, we'll turn our attention now to God's Word. We are in the midst of and almost finished with our Ten Commandments series, and we are on commandment number eight, do not steal. So as I have been doing, I'm going to read starting in verse two and read through to that commandment. This is God's word from Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that their days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving to you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. We ask that you would open our eyes, that we might see you more clearly in your word today, that you would unstop our ears, that we would hear what you have to say to us, that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that we might know you, understand your faithfulness and your love and your care for us, and that we might love and desire to serve you in return. Let us see Jesus today, and in seeing him, let us worship him and love him more. We pray in his name, amen. Well, do not steal. That one sounds easy, right? And really, we're going to talk today not as much about what it means, because I think most of you probably know what do not steal means, but really this question, why? Why is it that we steal? Why do we cheat on tests? Why do we take what's not ours? Why do we shoplift? Why do we rob? Why do we take other people's ideas? Why do we think that we need to take things that don't belong to us so that we might be fulfilled? Well, when I was a student at the University of Texas, lived in Austin, one of my favorite things to do was read the, the Austin Chronicle. And if you, if you know the Austin Chronicle, it's kind of a countercultural newspaper. But I didn't really read it kind of for the, the articles. I didn't really know what was going on in the Chronicle. I, there were two things I was looking for as a student. And the first was, where are the best shows playing tonight? Like, where are all my favorite bands playing tonight that I might go see them? And the second was this section that they used to call news of the weird. And it's exactly what you think it is. It's just weird news. And it's funny, and it's odd, and there was always like a subsection of news of the weird that they called least competent criminal, and it was my favorite thing to read. And it was really just about dumb criminals. And I remember some of them still. So like, like this is one of my favorites. 
Guy walks into a convenience store. By the way, they like all take place at convenience stores. Guy walks into a convenience store. He wants to rob the convenience store, but he doesn't have kind of a handy ski mask or something to hide his face. So he takes what he has with him, which is his motorcycle helmet. And he puts on his motorcycle helmet and he closes kind of the, the, the shield there so you can't see his face, can't see his eyes. Everything seems great, right? Holds up, the clerk takes all the money, except he had forgotten that his name was printed on the side of his helmet. Or how about this guy? Walks into a convenience store. He buys groceries. He puts the groceries up there on the shelf. Then he writes a check for the groceries. And then he takes out a gun and he holds up the clerk and he takes all the money. Well, of course, when he's gone, the clerk calls the police. They look at the check, his address printed there, and they go to his house and they arrest him. Or this one's my favorite. Guy walks into a convenience store. He, he orders a pack of cigarettes. He puts down $2 on the counter for the cigarettes. And the clerk opens up the cash drawer and then turns around to grab the cigarettes from off, of the, off the shelf, turning his back on the cash drawer. So this guy cleverly thinks like, oh my goodness, open cash drawer. He reaches in, he sees, he sees a stack of cash, reaches in, grabs a stack of cash, and runs out the door. Except that it wasn't a stack of cash. It was a $1 bill on top of a stack of blank pieces of paper. And he left his $2 on the counter, so he lost a dollar in the transaction. Maybe there's our answer to why we steal. Maybe it's just because we're idiots and there's just something about human beings that we're so stupid that we decide that we're gonna try to take what's not ours. But it's not always idiots, is it? You know, when we lived in, in Baton Rouge, uh, we were robbed, I, <laughs> I almost lost count, I think it was seven times. Now, you're like, okay, it is idiot and we know who the idiot is, it's you. Uh, we were robbed seven times, but before you pass any judgment, listen to this, is that it was the same person who robbed us every time. Maybe you're thinking I'm even more of an idiot, right? It's even more confirmed in your mind. It was the same person who robbed us every time who was actually a child. It was a, a young boy, 13 years old, who lived in our neighborhood and was friends with our kids. At least we thought he was friends with our kids. This kid was really really smart. And he had manipulated us into thinking that he was loving the time that we would invite him over for dinner and that we would take him to church and that we would reach out to him and the time we would spend with him, all the while stealing from us, breaking in at night or breaking in when we were gone. He actually knew when we were going to church because we would take him to church sometimes. So he would break in most frequently on Sunday mornings, break a window and come in and steal some stuff. And it was never anything really big. But if you've ever been robbed, it feels terrible, doesn't it? And this kid, who was smart enough that we, we pretty much just thought it was him about halfway through, and he was still so smart that we couldn't catch him for the next four times. He wasn't dumb at all. He was, however, very poor. He lived without parents, with his grandmother, who was totally disengaged from his life. He lived what most of us, at least at least comparatively, would consider uh, extreme poverty. And so he was in many ways a product of his culture. So maybe that's the answer of why we steal, is that we steal because we're poor, we can't afford it, or because we're simply culturally shaped toward it. 
Well, sometimes. But did you know actually that the, the, the Journal of American Psychology has come out with a study that says that the rich shoplift more than the poor? Is that if, if you make over $70,000 a year, you are 30%, 30% more likely to shoplift than somebody who makes under $20,000 a year. In fact, I read, I read a story the other day of a woman who is doing just fine. She makes over $100,000 a year. She was arrested for stealing, shoplifting, $350 worth of merchandise from Macy's. She, she drove to the courthouse to enter her plea in a Mercedes, okay? So it's not just the poor who are stealing. So if it's not just those of us who are idiots and it's not just the poor or the disadvantaged in our culture, Maybe the answer to why we steal is just that we've lost kind of all sense of morals in our culture. Well, maybe. I read a story the other day about a man who stole a car and it went kind of like this. A woman, a mother, pulled up to surprisingly a convenience store and she was gonna run in and buy some milk and some food for her child. She had a four-year-old. She left the car running and left the four-year-old in the back seat and while she ran into the convenience store, this man walked up, saw a running car, keys in it, and decided he was gonna peel off or peel out and take the car for his own. Well, after he had gotten out of the parking lot, he looked in the back and realized there was a four-year-old child. So he pulled back into the parking lot to pull back around right about the time the mother was, of course, screaming and running out of, the depart- out of the convenience store, seeing that her car and her child had been stolen. This guy gets out, takes the kid out of the car, hands the kid to her mother, and begins to scold her to tell her how terrible of a mother she is for leaving her child in the car. He threatens to call the police on her, and then he stole her car again. Why do we steal? Why do we do the things that we do? Well, of course, you're probably expecting it by now in our discussion of the Ten Commandments, is that the reason that we do things is not just based on who we are and what culture we live in. It's not just our activity. It's not just our hands, of course, that God cares about. It's our heart. The reasons for why we do what we do is because, friends, The bad news is we have broken, messed up hearts. Paige uh, Benton Brown, was she was on staff at a big church in Dallas for for many years, and she tells the story of a young woman who had moved to Dallas from a different city. And she said this woman, she's 31 years old, she moves to the city, everything's fine, but she's starting to get adjusted. You know, it's whenever you move to a new place, there's always new allergies, right? So her kind of allergies start to go a little haywire, Fortunately, her brother is a physician. She calls her brother, says, can you write me a prescription for this? And like a good doctor, he says, yeah, I'll do it now, but you really need to find a doctor in Dallas. Well, after about three times of that, he finally kind of puts his foot down and he says, you've got to go find a real doctor. You need to go have a full exam, find a doctor in Dallas. So she finally does. And she goes in trying to get her Claritin you know, prescription refilled and goes in and the doctor, being a good doctor, does kind of a full exam on her and he takes out the stethoscope and he puts it up to her chest and he starts listening and he says, what's going on with your heart? And she says, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm 31. I'm in great health. I eat well, I exercise, I'm fine. And the doctor says, "Eh, I think you need to go see a cardiologist. And she says, cardiologist, I'm 31. 
I'm in great health. I eat well. I exercise. Everything's fine. And he says, eh, you need to go see the cardiologist. So she goes to the cardiologist's office, checks in. The nurse is looking at her, listens to her heart. The nurse says, what's going on with your heart? And she says, I'm fine. I'm 31. I'm in great health. I eat well. I exercise. Everything's great. The cardiologist finally comes in. He listens to her heart. They do some more tests. They put her on a treadmill. They hook a bunch of things up to her. And he says, you have real issues with your heart. You need to go into surgery tomorrow. To which she says, of course, I'm 31. I'm in great health. I eat well. I exercise. What's wrong? I'm in good health. And he says these great words. He says, there is no health apart from your heart. If your heart is unhealthy, you are unhealthy. And friends, that is true for us spiritually as well. It is our heart that drives our actions. And if our hearts are unhealthy, then our actions will also be unhealthy. So what is it in our hearts that makes us steal? What is it at the heart level? What's the seed that takes root in our hearts that grows into that tree that ends up being theft of either uh, identity or, 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 or answers on a test or the things in a store or something in somebody else's home? What is it in our hearts that makes us steal? Well, I think it's this. It is greed. It's greed that lives in our hearts it's the seed in our hearts that tells us that the way that we are going to become happy and secure in life is by getting all of the stuff that we think we lack. Let me say that again. That's what greed says to us, is that in order to find happiness and security in our lives, what we should do is look at all of the things that we think we lack and then go find those things and fill those places that we think are empty. That's what greed says to us. We're not okay the way we are. What we need is more. There's a great short story by Leo Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need? You should all go read this short story because then you can tell people you've read Tolstoy and you don't have to read War and Peace. It's just a really short story. You can knock it out in a day. And it's a great story about this farmer. He lives in this land and he, and he farms, he's very poor. And he decides, he saves up a little bit of his money, he, he, he grows some crops, he saves some money, he buys, a, he buys a bigger plot of land. And on that plot of land, he grows some more crops. And things start to go well for him. In fact, he's starting to make enough money that he can actually hire a servant to help him work the land. But of course, as we get more, we oftentimes want more. So he begins to think, how, where can I go and find more land so that I can grow more crops? Maybe I can even start ranching, and I can have more and more, and I could, I could actually accumulate a lot of wealth. So he leaves his little town. He goes off to a far country where he's heard there's great land. And once he gets to that far country, there's actually a traveler that he meets on the way that says, yeah, the land is really great here, but I tell you what you really need to do is you need to go keep going farther, and over that river, there is not only beautiful land... But the people who live there, they're kind of foolish. And you could probably get from them 10 times the amount of land for a half of the price that you could have in this place. So the farmer says, great idea. Takes his servant with him and they go off to this far off land and sure enough, it's a beautiful place. Beautiful rolling hills, it's green, it's fertile. There are streams running through, there are cows and goats grazing everywhere. 
And he runs into the people and he says, I need to talk to somebody about purchasing some land. And they say, great, why don't you come and talk to our chief? And he sits down with the chief and he says, I'd love to purchase some land. I want a farm. I want a ranch. I want to grow wealthy. And the chief says, fabulous. We'd love to have you. But we have a strange way, a different way of selling our land here. Land costs $1,000 a day. And the farmer says, $1,000 a day? I don't even know what you're talking about. That doesn't compute. What does that mean? And the chief says, let me explain it to you. You go find the plot of land that you like, and however much land you can walk off in the span of a day, you get to keep. You give us $1,000, then you walk off as much land as you want, but at sundown, if you have not arrived back at the place that you started, then we keep the $1,000 and you don't get any of the land. And the farmer says, this is easy. <laughs> I can walk a long way. This is going to be perfect. So he takes his servant and he takes the shovel that they have, the spade, and they meet the chief and some of the townspeople there right at sunup. And at sunup, the farmer takes off and he starts to go towards some really beautiful land. But of course, throughout the, the day, as he crests one hill, he looks over and he says, oh, well, that land would be great for growing wheat. So he kind of diverts himself a little bit to take in that piece of land too. And as he gets around that corner and crosses that little stream, he looks over and he says, oh, boy, that land over there would be so good for cattle. I need to take that as well. So he, he extends his circle a little wider and he takes in the land that would be great for cattle. And by this time, the sun is starting to head down and he is very tired. And he is a good ways away from where he started. So realizing that it's coming soon, he starts to run. And he runs, and it's hot, and he starts to strip himself of his clothing, and he starts to get sunburned. And finally, just as the sun is going down, he reaches that last little place where he started, and he falls down right there at the starting line and collapses. And this is the way that Tolstoy ends the story. The farmer's servant came running up, and he tried to raise him, but he saw that blood was flowing from his mouth. He was dead. His servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for him to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all the land he needed. Friends, the beautiful truth that Tolstoy tells us in that story is that greed will kill. And the irony is, greed in its search for happiness to get what we don't have will kill your happiness. It will kill your joy. It will kill your happiness and those around you. In fact, taken to its extreme in theft and robbery, you can see why so oftentimes these days we see robbery and murder together. It's because the seed and the heart of greed and of anger, it's a really similar seed. See, maybe you're even seeing now how so many of these commands kind of overlap one another. How the desire, Jesus says, what is murder actually grows from a seed of anger, and what is adultery actually grows from a seed of lust. And we're seeing here that what is theft often grows from a seed of greed. And you know what? Oftentimes, they are all interacting with each other. We desire what we don't have, and so we want to take it from another person or from another person's, uh, another person's stash of things or even that person's life. If you read the account of David and Bathsheba, 
you can read and really not even know which of the commandments to address with David because he is all over the place. David looks over and he covets another man's wife that he sees, he wants to take it, so he takes what is not his by the power given to him as king. He lusts after her, commits adultery, and then has her husband killed and murdered. He has basically, in one fell swoop, kind of wiped out half of the Ten Commandments. And oftentimes this is what happens to us, is that we think it's so simple, but really when we start to look at the heart level, we see that it bleeds into so many different places. And if you remember, actually, we're talking about the first commandment, have no other gods before me. And one of the things we said in that talk was that when we break the first commandment or when we break any other commandment, we're oftentimes breaking the first commandment too. Martin Luther said this, and I think he was right on task in saying this. He said, you know, if you break any of the other nine commandments, you have also broken the first commandment. Because in breaking any of the other nine commandments, you have displaced God at the center of your life to believe that something else needs to be right at the middle. You see how that happens with greed? The way that I will be happy in my life, the way that I will find significance or fulfillment or happiness or security is that I've got to get the stuff that I don't have and that becomes the center of my life around which everything else revolves. And if we put something at the center of our lives, we're always displacing God who is meant to be at the center. Joy and I traveled, met some new friends in Charlotte a couple of weeks ago. They're friends of friends. We met these other friends of ours at this house. And these people in Charlotte, y'all, they were so welcoming and so hospitable and so kind and generous to us. And they lived in this glorious house with a beautiful pool and a hot tub that we sat in every night. And they took us out to eat at fancy restaurants and we took a walk around their amazing neighborhood with 900 foot tall trees, it seemed like. And I left not only just thinking what wonderful hospitality and how beautifully we have been served, but I left thinking, why don't I have a hot tub? Why don't I have a pool like that? Why don't I have that incredible bed that I slept so well in? Why don't I have this amazing house? Why don't I live in a neighborhood like that? Why don't I have literally a Rolls Royce they had in their garage? Why don't I have all of these things? See, the seed of greed that lives in my heart completely ruined the beauty of the experience. It killed my joy. It killed my happiness. It took away the beautiful things that God had given me. So what's the answer? How do we combat greed in our hearts? How do we uproot that seed of greed? Well, briefly as we end here, I wanna give you one not to do and then three scripture passages that I think are gonna help us. Here's the first thing. To remember what not to do in combating sin. And this really is all of God's law, all of the 10 commandments in any way that we struggle against them. What not to do is simply to repeat to ourselves over and over, don't steal. Stop being greedy. Stop being anxious. Stop wanting the stuff that you don't have. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. That never works. Uh, in, in his book, The Island of Dr. Moreau, H.G. Wells talks about the, a guy who's kind of shipwrecked on this island. And on this island, there's like literally like a mad scientist. And this mad scientist on this island has figured out a way to take all of the animals on the island and to somehow imbue in them human characteristics. 
And so he's got all of these animals that he has kind of trained and by weird scientific manipulation, he's kind of created into pseudo-humans. And he keeps them all in check by what he calls the law. This mantra that they repeat every day, they repeat it over and over. This is what they say. They say, not to go on all fours. This is the law. Are we not men? Not to eat flesh or fish. That is the law. Are we not men? Not to claw at the bark of trees. That is the law. Are we not men? Not to chase other men. That is the law. Are we not men? Now, does the law work? Well, for Dr. Moreau, the answer is yes and no. During the day, it does a pretty good job of curbing their behavior. But at night, they become who they really are. And you start to see their animal instincts come out and they literally go wild at night. Because the truth is, the law is pretty good at curbing behavior, but it's really bad at changing hearts. We will never have our hearts changed by simply telling ourselves to do better, to do more, to be better, to stop sinning. We may see a little success every now and then, but our hearts will never be different. So how do we do it? Well, I think we see three really great passages in Scripture that we get to rely on to see how God works for us. First is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 through 30. Just listen. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along, or you can just listen as I read this. This is Jesus talking. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's Jesus talking about the displacing that oftentimes happens in our hearts. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? See, what Jesus says is that the way that we start to combat greed in our hearts is we remember the character of God. God provides. It's what Jesus says over and over in that passage. God provides. He loves to provide. He loves to give. He loves to give abundantly. And so the picture of us is like a kid who's sitting at a table and his mother or father brings him this wonderful, beautiful plate of food. And it's warm and it smells good and it looks great and it tastes amazing and it's sitting right in front of him. And the kid says, I'm so hungry. What am I going to do? And then he goes over to the trash and starts rummaging through the garbage for food. That's the picture that we have of the way that we oftentimes act. Is that we say, I'm so hungry and I need so much and I've got to go find this do-it-yourself way of fulfilling myself to find happiness and security in life. When all the while God has given us exactly what we need in abundance. 
And we're messing around in the garbage while the beautiful plate of food is right in front of us. So there's the first way on the path is to realize that your God is a God who loves to give, who loves to provide. And that changes our hearts. Second passage I want us to look at is in Acts chapter 4. This is after Jesus has been crucified, after he has risen, and after he has ascended to the Father. And what we get is this beautiful picture of the new, ch- the new church starting to form. And I want you to listen to the character of their lives together. This is what Luke says for us in Acts 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that the, any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But, if they had, but they had everything in common And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Friends, one of the things that marks the new church These believers gathered together worshiping Jesus is radical, radical generosity in ways that kind of shake us as capitalists, in ways that probably kind of confuse us as Americans. And let me just say, like a seminary professor of mine says, if God's word leans on you, go ahead and let it lean. Don't try to explain it away. Because what we're seeing here is radical generosity. It's people who were depending on and recognizing the great provision of God for them and what it was producing in them was radical generosity with one another. Somebody who was cold, didn't have a cloak to wear. Somebody, another person said, I got two, take mine. I don't have a way around, can't get anywhere. I, I got a donkey, you can ride my donkey. I need things. Well, I've got a land I could sell. I can sell that land and provide for you so that you can have food. Radical generosity with one another. But again, that doesn't come simply from beating it into our heads, does it? It doesn't come from us saying, stop being greedy, be generous, stop being greedy, be generous, over and over and over, we repeat it. It actually has to come from understanding that God has been generous to us. Here's the last passage I want us to look at. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Friends, the story of the Bible is of the wealthiest person who ever lived giving up his wealth to come and be with the poor so that they might become wealthy. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, is that Jesus put aside his incredible wealth, the owner of all things, the creator of all things, the Lord and the king of the cosmos, put it aside so that he might actually come to us who had nothing and give us everything. In John 3, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, what do we hear Jesus say? For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave. In Philippians 2, we hear Paul say the same thing, is that Jesus, who was equal with God, gave up that equality to humble himself, that he might serve, that he might be humbled, that he might even be put to death on our behalf. Jesus gave for us. That's our motivation, friends. If you want to see greed uprooted in your heart, these are the steps. First, receive 
the wonderful news that God has given himself completely to you. And then give generously in return and watch the Holy Spirit go to work in your heart. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful for this good news that you not only provide for us all that we need, but Lord, you have given yourself to us. You have given Jesus to us to fill our deepest need, the one that we don't even think of so oftentimes. So Lord, will you turn us away from the do-it-yourself method of finding happiness and security in life and turn us toward the you-have-done-it method of receiving your grace by faith and holding loosely even to the things that we have, Lord, so that, so that our hearts might not be owned by greed, so that it might not even play itself out in things like theft, but Lord, so that we might be marked as those who desire to give as we have been given to. Show us what it means, Lord, to understand your great gift to us and to give in return. We pray in Christ's name, amen.